We live in a world of dynamic cyber threats, but one thing is clear, human behavior is the most vulnerable target for attacks. Welcome to Behave by CyberSafe, the foremost cybersecurity podcast focused on human cyber risk. Organizational awareness is no longer enough, so how will your team stay protected? Be sure to subscribe to Behave on your preferred listening app for cutting edge insights into our evolving industry and stay ahead of the shift to security behaviors and human risk quantification. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Behave podcast. I am Munya Otto, a VP of Marketing here at CyberSafe. Today, I am extremely delighted to be joined by Ellie Warner, who is Managing Director, uh, Global Head of People Security at Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, Ellie, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Looking forward to a great discussion. No, I, I am as well, I have to admit. I've been really, really looking forward to this. Before we dive into the conversation, Ellie, I've got a little bit of intelligence about you, so I'm just going to give our guests a little bit of a glimpse about who you are. And of course, you can correct me if I get this horribly wrong. But Ellie has led uh, Standard Chartered Bank's information and cybersecurity training awareness and exercises uh, agenda since January 2015, with data and privacy resilience and third party being added to her remit in November 2019. Ellie also leads the bank's global information and cyber security skills accreditation program to ensure the bank's cybersecurity workforce has a clear learning pathway to upskill and cross-skill, as well as to attract other bank employees interested in the career in ICS. Ellie, it says here, your team's mission is to foster a robust security culture, specifically to ensure all bank employees from board to branch are aware of ICS risks and their role in protecting the bank and customers' wealth from existing and emerging security threats. Other relevant uh, points, Ellie leads a team of 25 people who are interested in the new and drives your team to innovate and to shake things up. You've written uh, and indeed thought about why mentorship matters and how you have personally benefited from it in the past. You're an advocate for ensuring women have equal voice at the table, both professionally and personally, and you're actively involved in the Lean In program. Lean In Singapore are founding Lean In at the bank in 2018. Wow. <laughs> so you're not busy at all then? <laughs> not, not at all. I'm just trying to find something else to fill the other four days a week. So yeah, when you, when you read it out like that, it's quite a mouthful, but thoroughly enjoyable and, and in true cyber style. Since I wrote that, of course, things have further changed and evolved. So I now also have the privilege of running our ICS risk culture or risk culture as applied to ICS initiative in the bank. And that's how all the kind of the culture initiatives that we run that relate to our broader risk culture initiative. So it's super interesting space, big, heavy component on training and awareness, but obviously it's other aspects around governance and frameworks and policies. We can talk about that. And then again, we have a new remit as of last month, which is looking at the user experience across you know, the rollout of technology controls and the human experience and how we make that as frictionless as possible, which is a great remit because as we know, we're always trying to find in cyber, aren't we, this kind of balance between managing the risk, not doing harm to our data and assets, maintaining our license to operate, whilst also enabling the business to get on with their day jobs. So it's that wonderful kind of balance on a daily basis. So that's been added recently. So yeah, never a dull day. Wow. Well, Ellie, I know this is probably impossible, but can I push you to describe what you do in perhaps one sentence, just for, for those that may not be able to understand the breadth of all of that? If you, if you were in, a, in an elevator or a cafe and someone said, what do you do? Well, how would you summarize that for our, for our audience? 
Oh, well, my nephews and nieces often ask me this and they're kind of ranging between 12 and, and 20. It's always a really good test, isn't it? If you can explain it to them. And I, I like I say very simply, I help everyone in the bank protect our customer data from the bad guys, you know, from cyber threats. Sometimes people love a car bumper sticker. So we often say, you know, we're helping to build the bank's human firewall, which is a very easy visual, isn't it? And then also, you know, another alternative for you might be how do we, we help promote a healthy risk culture? Because actually everything we do is around a healthy risk culture. Just come off a panel in the bank talking about risk culture. It's quite a nebulous term, isn't it? But actually it boils down to behaviours, desired behaviours, doesn't it? And if you think about what training and awareness does, it's all about what's the behaviours that we want people to adopt as pertaining to cyber risk, whether it's classifying data, shifting left on our secure by design or what have you. So yeah. Hopefully that explains it in simple terms, but yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Putting it into one sentence. It's not easy, but as, as you know, Ellie, we hold and share your belief about the fact that it's all about behavior here at CyberSafe. So I'm really glad to hear that that's how you describe it. And I'm sure that's, that's been widely adopted around the bank as a result of the way you're kind of leading that charge. Taking us a step back then, how did you end up in cybersecurity? I, I mean, I love this question because it kind of makes you look back and go, wow, how did I get here? And like a lot of people, I would say, who've been in the industry for a while, I say, you know, which is very diplomatic, where we started out cybersecurity degree, right? It didn't really exist. And, and as a result, a lot of us, myself included, it wasn't planned. It was fairly circuitous. It was definitely not linear. But I have always been in technology. And back when I graduated in the 90s, you know, there wasn't this thing called cybersecurity. I had done an arts degree. I was trained in classical music. And then, then scrambled through a conversion master's degree in computer science because I wanted to get into technology. It came out of that with an absolute hatred of Unix assembly language, but quite curious about tech and probably more specifically curious about how tech could enable the business. And, and my first ever job was, again, not by design. Well, actually, it kind of was. I had applied for a job. It was the recession in the UK. There were 1,100 applicants for this one job. It was a head of, you know, it wasn't a head at all. It was a telco research analyst for a London-based IT consultancy firm. And I was temping at the time because I hadn't heard back from this job. So obviously went out to temp to earn some money. And it was a great company that I'd applied for, Ovum, which is still going today. And I was sorting through all the CVs. That was part of my job. And I had to welcome the shortlisted candidates for the job that I had applied for. Imagine how that went. So I was sat there and actually it was for me, it was one of my early kind of, you know, learning moments was hey, you don't ask, you don't get. So I spoke to the, the head of research. I said, look, I'm here. Why don't you interview me? I actually applied for the job. I've done a master's in science. And why don't you interview me? So they ended up creating a second role, which is the IT research analyst. So just a really, just a really fantastic example of just kind of leaning in, saying to them, look, why don't you interview me? I applied for this job. Yeah, and then it kind of evolved from there, really. Um, again, not through design. I ended up getting on a plane to see an old friend from uni in Dubai and ended up working out there for a, well, actually myself, doing some research on just after the Gulf War. There was a lot of requirements technology. So I ended up doing some research for what was AT&T NCR, looking at professional service in the Middle East. And yeah, ended up working some work systems, then selling technical workstations to oil and gas. And I guess the theme throughout all of that is whilst technology was at the heart of it, it was more about how that technology could help the business. And I think one of the early kind of aha moments for me was the head of IT at Aramco, which is the big Saudi oil 
plan. He said, your technical workstations, we don't really want to know about all the features, to be honest. We just want to know, can they help us know where to drill in this vast desert? And that was like a, so we don't need to go in and sell them all this, you know, hardcore tech features and benefits. We need to be able to go and sell what it can help you do as a business. And I think that's kind of the theme throughout my career. I've always kind of taken jobs where I've been able to look at things from the business point of view, but how does technology enable that as well? So, uh, yeah, 25 years later, living in the Middle East and Europe and Asia, still kind of using that as a theme for the work that I do and just, just thoroughly enjoying it, really. And that's fascinating. That's really, really fascinating. I have to ask, how did that background in research and kind of being an analyst and, and, and really having those instincts for the business issues kind of help you as you got into cybersecurity? Or how did that shape your approach to cybersecurity? Yeah, I really like that question. And actually, it's something that we often both get asked, but also address when we're speaking with graduates and apprentices and um, people that might have an idea that they want to get into cyber, but they almost self-select themselves out, which is I did. I, I self-selected out when I got the call for this job. I said, I haven't done policy, I haven't done banking, and I haven't done cyber. But then, of course, I quickly learned that actually they actively needed and wanted non-cyber people for this specific role. They needed fresh non-banking ideas, you know, from non, maybe non-regulated organizations where you have maybe Latitude, for example, but also after a few conversations with some friends about why am I getting the call for this job? I can't do it, which is what a lot of people do, especially women, is we kind of self-select out rather than looking at what we can do. I realize there's lots of transferable skills in cyber, aren't there? And I love it when we get all this fantastic talent coming into the bank in our graduate program and they come up to us and they say, I love it working in cyber. I never thought I'd end up in cyber. I wanted to Eagle or HR or policy. I'm like, well, we've got all of those roles in cyber. That's the beauty, isn't it? I think there's about 100 roles in cyber within our bank alone. Some are very technical, some less technical. But I think the common issue is to your question, it's all about the business. A business owns the risk, right? Business is accountable for running the assets and putting, you know, we come up with the controls and the services, but they basically manage the risk and they decide how to classify and protect their, their assets and their data, right? So we enable them to do that through technology controls and human controls. But if you can't understand the business needs and you can't have a conversation about what their needs are versus here's a product, here's a control, here's another release, you know, here's MFA, here's this, it's not going to succeed because they're going to find a workaround, they're going to resist, or they're just not going to understand why. And of course, the big thing about cyber is helping the business understand why are we doing this? We don't want to be the no guys. We want to be the enabling people. We want to help them do their business safely and securely, continue to have a license to operate, continue to avoid having a data breach. We need these technology controls, but let's discuss with you before, during and after, and then look at lessons learned if it didn't go as smoothly as, as planned. So look, coming from kind of a marketing background, yeah, I think it really, it really helps actually. You know, we've got 94,000 employees in the bank. They've all got different roles. They've all got different needs. They've all got different risks. They've got different leveling of access to systems and assets, privileged information. They're all targeted in different ways by our threat actors. So my first day in the job, I drew a little chart for the team, which was we've got to have a marketing-driven approach to cyber awareness. But I think about this nine to 6,000 employees in the bank as individuals, because they're all, A, they're all individuals. B, when they go home, they're treated as individuals when they buy stuff online. So you can't have this one-size-fits-all. I know that's something that's really core to 
CyberSafe's kind of ethos is this targeted of learning. So yeah, I think it's all about marketing, understanding people and having a conversation about what their needs are and then helping them rather than forcing stuff on them. Ali, 96,000 people, a, a huge mandate. In our space, it's all too easy to stagnate and to deliver the same program year on year, especially at that scale. What do you do to encourage your team to innovate and, and push the envelope? So it's a balance. It is a balance. I come from a non-banking background. You know, I worked for a, a, an amazing organization before I worked for this amazing organization called Sun Microsystems, where it was just about just get out and do amazing things. It was an incredible engineering company. And they, their ethos, their culture was just get out there and do stuff. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. Just do the next thing. In a banking environment, it's a little bit more regulated. It is a little controlled. So actually, over the years, I've kind of tempered my approach to, not tempered, I've had to manage this kind of constant, constant innovation with actually, we've also got some obligations to meet as well. And that might sound a bit kind of you know, conservative, but we have got to manage the balance between innovation, pushing the envelope, coming up with new, you know, partnering with organizations, with vendors, always looking at how we can do things differently. But also, you do also get new idea fatigue as well, right? So you also want to make sure that the stuff you've talked about settles in. This is a very different answer that I would have given a few years ago. Before, it was all about, yeah, what can we do different every day? But the reality is, you've also got to have time for those, the new stuff to kind of settle in as well. But I always challenge my team to look outwards. You know, I'm an avid podcast listener, love researching new learning. I've got all these learning podcasts going we partner, we have a fantastic people capability team in the bank that's coming up with new ways of learning, you know, nudge theory and brain training. And there's all these wonderful pilots that we, we kind of work with them on or learn from. Obviously yourselves like vendors, you know, looking at how do we scale, how do we just scale a whole user experience, right? So, so yes, you've got to constantly challenge yourself, you know, storytelling or brain training, you know, mini learning modules, nudge emails. We know that people learn through continuous. They don't learn through one mandatory e-learning. So how do we constantly sort of find ways of doing things, but also give the time and the space for the team to learn those skills or to partner with vendors to sort of, you know, augment those skills that we have in-house and then let them kind of play out and then do little pulse surveys. Did it work? Did people like the nudge emails? They didn't, then we won't do them anymore. Did people like that, you know, that hardcore close feedback loop? You know, we've got to make sure that what we're doing lands and 96,000 individuals are all learning different ways. So, you know. Well, you mentioned this idea of, you know, going from Sun where you were able to do these incredible, innovative, fast moving kind of experiments, almost it sounds like, and then kind of needing to and, and indeed succeeding at applying the same principles in a banking environment. How do you think regulation is playing a role in that environment? Is it helping or hindering when it comes to this human aspect? Well, I love my job and I intend to keep it. So my answer. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> and look, I, as I said, I spent 20, 20 years in non-banking and it was basically just off you go, do your thing, right? And then, uh, I mean, it wasn't quite, quite like that, but there are different parameters for different types of industries. So I think there are pros and cons, like every, everything, you know, strengths, strengths, the flip side is a weakness, right? So I do think there are some things that actually over time I have come to recognize as, as pros, as advantages, right? So in terms of how it can help, security is a bit of a zero-upside game, isn't it, right? So as long as you're doing your job and you're keeping everything safe, then you're almost like not known. It's almost like you want to not be known, right? It's a bit like counterterrorism or 
you've got to do all this stuff in the background to ensure that all the business can carry on smoothly. You can continue to operate as a fill in the blanks bank in our space. But you also want to introduce some innovation as well. And I'll come to innovation later because it's not just about controls and obligations. It's also about innovation. How do you marry? What I would say is the advantage is that you've got your policies and your standards and your technical controls. So in that respect, it's a door opener. A lot of this is mandatory. You know, it's defined by the regulators. It's mandatory. Now, we all know that just because something is a rule, it doesn't make it popular. So you've got to think about your own personal experience when you're when you're going out to business, you know, we all know that we hate hearing it's my job mode, but we've got to do it. <laughs> so you've got to think about when you're trying to roll out a technology control, have that conversation with them. Explain why. Don't just go in, well, it's a policy, we've got to do it. Because you know, just saying that a rule something's a rule, it doesn't necessarily get you that engagement and that buy-in that you need. So but I would say it's a door opener in that respect, but don't use that as your opening gambit. You know, that's not going to win you any friends, is it? Um, secondly, I do think it, it has certainly encouraged me in the last eight and a half years to think through human risks, so human you know, awareness and learning and people security in a, through a risk lens, which can be really, really good. Getting back to my earlier point about you know, innovation versus meeting your obligations, in a world where you can do anything, where maybe there are fewer parameters or boundaries, there can also be a lot of inefficiencies. Because you can go off and do a lot of things that are just fun to do or maybe interesting, but is it really helping you reduce the risk? Is it helping you achieve your goals? So I do think it encourages you to think through that kind of risk lens of what we do. What's your actual desired outcome? Why are you investing time, effort and money and people's energy in this type of training? You know, and I know this is something that, that CyberSafe does a lot of is, you know, you want to be doing this kind of targeted versus one size fits all. And I think what in a regulated environment means that you've got to be selective because you have got finite resources. You cannot reduce the risk to zero. Well, you can. You just cut off all email and, you know, but then you can't operate as a company. Right? You've got to operate as a company and still do your job and you have your shareholders and your clients. I think thirdly, it does keep you on your toes. You know, you're always thinking about how you can reduce the risks. When you have a really good audit or a really good discussion with a regulator, which I love, having that great collaboration, that's fantastic. It's about how do we constantly make better. Like everything, there's a flip side. <laughs> and for me, I think the big one is, you know, that those same strengths or pros can also be a little restrictive. Sometimes you can spend all of your time and effort meeting those requirements that might mean, depending on your resources that you've got, fewer resources could be then spent on the innovation. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. Like we meet Later obligations, but we do some really fantastic innovative stuff as well. You know, so it's not kind of either or, is it? Maybe the other point is that not all metrics of success could be linked to risk reduction. And this is something we talk a lot about in my team is whilst we have to have this risk lens in everything we do, and everything's about this Goldilocks, you know, not too much, not too little risk, not necessarily, especially in training and awareness, we try and make sure that everything we do links to risk reduction. But sometimes, you can't make that link and that's okay. And I think sometimes as professionals in this space, we've got to be able to have those risk-based conversations. You know, it's all about controls and processes and risk reduction, but also sometimes, you know, it might be too reductionist. Sometimes we just got to have a little bit of creative flair and be able to do stuff. We can't necessarily say as a result of running that initiative, we reduce the risk by X percent. So it is definitely that kind of balance between the two. And um, I think the final thing is, 
humans are humans, right? One day they classify, the next they don't. One day they click, the next they don't. So whilst we're heavily regulated, we also need to understand that we're, we're, we are a company of humans. <laughs> and human behavior is highly, um, you know, it's, you can't predict it. So, yeah, we have to bear that in mind. I don't think we do. As you say, there are pros and cons, but dealing with people is, is, is kind of, is that double-sided kind of notion there as well, which is, you know, you are still dealing with people. They are still individuals. There is not a one-size-fits-all here. I love the quiz that you just made there. If you could advise the regulator, uh, perhaps, or see some change from the regulator, what, what would you like to see from a regulatory perspective in terms of some evolution or change? I mean, what I can say is when I have a conversation, which I have regularly with the, with the regulators for my portfolio, it always feels collaborative. And I think the reason for that is there is no fixed industry best practice when it comes to cyber because it is just too dynamic. So we are constantly in the industry. I want to say playing catch up, but at least we are constantly trying to find ways to keep ahead of the bad guys who are you know, very well resourced, right? That's what they do all day is find ways to, to, to hack, hack into organizations and, and data and what have you. So what I really appreciate is, and it's the same with our auditors, you know, internal auditors as well, is having those conversations where we are genuinely trying to get things to the best outcome. And we've had a few incidents of that, you know, around risk culture and around other, you know, topics where, where we have a collaborative conversation. So, you know, I would never say I give advice to a regulator, we, you know, but I would, I always appreciate those conversations. Um, and it's so fast moving, I think, Candidly, the entire industry is constantly trying to work out what does what does great look like. You know, there's no gold star of cyber. There just is. I mean, yes, of course, there's you know industry standards, and you know, are you roughly on the line above or below? But the reality is, it's not a linear risk. It's not predictable, and we're constantly trying to find ways to innovate as well as remediate. And I just really appreciate it when we have those conversations that are genuinely curious and genuinely collaborative. Because then you're just going to get, it's just going to get, things are just going to get better and better if you have that curiosity and that collaboration. Well, long may that continue, that openness and that curiosity and that collaboration. I think you're right. Discussions within that context are progressive. They create a platform for innovation and, of course, for, for resolution of the challenge of the risk that is posed, at least in the human aspect of risk in cyber. Switching gears for a moment, as I said at the beginning of, of this episode, you're well known as an advocate for inclusion for women in the workspace. What motivates you to give back in this way? Well, I mean, in full disclosure, I, I started at least from a proactive point of view actually quite quite late, which is kind of shocking in a way because I often reflect on why did it take me this long to do it? And I, you know, I mean, yes, I, think I was brought up by a single mom. She was passionate about, you know, education for her daughters and her sons, of course, as well. And, you know, I was often the only woman at the leadership table, certainly when I was, you know, in my, in my earlier Years and I kind of look back. I mean, I must I must have been passively an advocate, but I wasn't an active, you know, really activist in terms of investing a lot of my personal time and professional time in helping have conversations and helping mentoring and setting up, you know, initiatives like Lean In. The reality is we've got work to do, right? In tech. I've always been in tech 25 years and and, and yeah, like a lot of women frequently one of the very few, if not sometimes the only woman at the at the leadership table. And I think we've just got to be aware, like boys and girls, men and women, it's, it's not just the guys. And I always give an example, because I always think you've got to look inward before you look outward 
of when I hired somebody a few years back and I got all the CVs and it was the usual same old CVs and they were all guys and I shortlisted. So guess what? Shortlist from a set of old men, then you're only going to get men in your shortlist. Like, what was I thinking? Why did I not go back to the agency and say, hey, this is not good enough. You need to work harder for us. They're all these guys already. I can just go on LinkedIn and find them. You need to work for us and go and find us women. And by the way, there are women out there. You just got to work harder at it. But I didn't know, I didn't know to do that. And there's a great phrase from Sheryl Sandberg, which is, you can't really change something that you're not aware of. But once you're aware of it, you can't help but change it. And it's so true. It's what, that's what I love about unconscious bias and biases. When somebody opens your eyes, you're like, oh my gosh, wow, I was doing that all those years. So, so it's incumbent on all of us, right? And as Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, there really is a special place in hell for women that don't help other women. And I think she's right. I think we have got to be advocates for each other. Of course, we need male advocates as well. It's a multi-nuanced approach. There is no one silver bullet. But, you know, I do something, maybe not every day, but every week, whether it's a mentoring conversation or working with a company here in Singapore to set up Lean In in their organization, or we run some fantastic initiatives in the bank, uh, acceleration programs to get more young women into cyber, be a role model so that when they're looking at cyber teams, they don't just see all guys as well. Yeah, it's just it's just daily stuff that you can do to kind of just help move things in the right direction, which is about leveling the playing field. It's not about having unfair advantage, it's just about leveling the playing field. And I gotta say, and this was reflected by one of our CEOs recently. We always say we're just so busy, right? We'll always be with our so-called day jobs. But I realize now this is part of my day job. I, I work inside. We produce products and services for an incredibly diverse audience in the bank, you know, with 70 plus markets and goodness knows how many wonderful nationalities and cultures. If we don't have those represented in our teams, then we're not able to. And hey, and by the way, it's not just our internal customers. There's some brilliant examples in the CIA of how they had to change their demographic build up their teams post one to be more, you know, because you, you can't have, you, you know, your one demographic that's completely different from your threat actors, right? You've got to think like them and kind of, and there's a brilliant example of the, the Enigma code when they were breaking the Enigma code back in the war and they, they rang up this guy who was just the guy, right? He wasn't a mathematician. They're like, we want you to come and work for us. He was like, what? I'm not a mathematician. Like, yes, that's why we want you to come and work for us. And there were also about 50% women on the Enigma Code team. And they reckon as a result of having that diversity of thought and not just all mathematicians, they were able to break the code three years earlier. So the, the whole ended three years earlier. I mean, what? But the power of diversity, right? All diversity and inclusion, everything. Yeah. Ellie, selfishly, as a girl dad, I, I, I love this and I, I really, really champion this approach. And I thank you for, for, for the hard work that you're doing in this space. Extremely encouraging and paves a really, really promising roadmap for my daughter and others as well. What advice would you give to women starting out in careers in tech and cybersecurity, if you could? Oh, look, for me, it's really simple. Just be confident. I mean, I, I'm, I'm extrovert and I'm quite confident. So I... I had to really kind of go back and dig deep about what what advice to give to people that maybe don't have that benefit of being confident and an extrovert. And the reality is I'm extrovert and I'm confident. I still self-selected out when I got the call from the headhunter for this job after 20 years. If I can do that, my goodness, what chance does a 
introverted, you know, maybe somebody that is young, you know, earlier on in their career. So you don't want to be arrogant. You know, it's got to be data driven. It's, you know, but, but you just go into that little bit of confidence. Don't self-select out. Think about, and select is a really tricky one because it's an incredibly diverse, so it's such a fantastic area, isn't it? Because it's so incredibly diverse and we need people in all walks of life, very, very technical, not so technical, business, policy, legal, and just think about all of those skills that you do have. We have a lot of brilliant technical women and we have a lot of brilliant non-technical men and vice versa, right? So just think about what you do have and the skills you can Network like crazy. Just get out there, build your network. My goodness, you know, and nurture that network. Don't just post that on LinkedIn, take them up for coffees. Get a mentor. Get a mentor. No, I have to say, you know, that, that one on mentoring is incredible. You know, mentoring for me has been a life-changing gift and I would be nowhere, I would be nowhere without that. So I, I fully kind of support that, that idea and, and, and indeed encourage our listeners to take that one with, with, you know, grab it and, and absolutely invest in those relationships because you just never know what nugget is going to be dropped over coffee, over lunch, and that changes your career. I think, I think that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Totally. And then it, and then it ripples throughout the rest of your life. One of my old bosses, when I was, he was offering me a job and I was like, I'm going to take that job. It's crazy huge. And he said, when you are comfortable with 70% of what you do, it's time to move on to something else. And I've used that phrase again and again and again when I mentor. For people that want to, not everyone wants to, by the way, but it was really powerful advice. And it was like kind of, you know, constantly challenge yourselves and constantly look, you know, growth, you know, growth mindset. And I guess the other final point is just to do- document your accomplishments. I think no one else is going to, unless you've got a great mentor, no one else is going to promote you, right? So, you, so you, again, you want to do it with evidence and with data, but document your accomplishments, just help kind of tell your story and tell your brand as well, because there's lots of people out there doing it and some of them are great and some of them are great. So, you know. <laughs> this is good stuff. I mean, I mean, the reality is we do over evaluating our failures, don't we? And then we shy away from actually kind of putting down the things we've got right and the wins we've had. Amazing, amazing. Ellie, I, I'm conscious that you've been so generous with your time. I've got one more question. If you had to name one book which has had the greatest impact on your career to date, what, what would that be? Oh, my God, I love this question. I love Desert Island Disc, so I always, I thought I'd have an immediate answer to this. I mean, look, I am a podcast listener, and I'm not just saying that, just because I stare at screens all day, you know, and, and, and at presentations and stuff. So I love just listening and hawking and going to the gym and, Putting my podcast on, I just love that. I had to really think hard about this. I'm not going to give you a straight answer because I think early on in your career, well, early in your career, you've got different, it was all about business and I was reading The Economist and I had Newsweek and I had all my kind of business magazines. And then much later on, it was more about personal development and honing my leadership skills. So I've got some fantastic, you know, cyber podcasts. I love the David Spark you know, CISO series, which is great. It's quite irreverent, quite fun. I think cyber, like this podcast, it should be fun and engaging. I love life ones like Back Your Side, you know, Sideways, or Robin Sharma. I love all that kind of Mind Valley stuff as well. Obviously, D and I, big Benny Brown fan. Loads of comedy. I think when you work in cyber, you're always fighting fights. You've got to have a load of comedy podcasts on your phone to just lighten the mood at the end of the day. But if I had to recommend one, I thought about the book that I recommend to people the most is one that I've really inhaled the last couple of years, which is The Advice Monster and The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay-Stania. And it's just brilliantly simple. You know, seven questions that will change your life. Stop coming up with all the answers, which, my gosh, you think you have to do as a leader. No, 
you don't. Just ask lots of questions. And it's freeing. And I, it's freeing for everyone around you. And it's freeing for you. And it was a joyful discovery. And I wish somebody had given it to me 20 years ago. So, yeah, that's my book. Wow. Wow. Ellie, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for that contribution. I haven't read those books, but I'm, they, they, they're going on my list and I will absolutely be letting you know all about how I get through that. So yes, uh, to our audience and our listeners, my guest has been Ellie Warner, who is MD, Global Head of People Security at Standard Chartered Bank. Ellie, thank you so much for your time. You are a gift to the industry. You're a gift to the sector. And of course, a gift to all of the uh, young ladies, girls, women out there that are trying to make it in, in, in this kind of doggy dog world. Thank you so much for your time and I really, really look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Awesome.